Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then I'd encourage you to please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a cloudy autumn morning here in the capital is Daniel Tullock. Daniel is the chief executive of Keep the Faith, the UK's leading black and minority ethnic community magazine. He is also the chief executive of the Diverse Media Group, which specialises in advertising to Britain's black and minority ethnic communities. Um, Dan, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here today. Likewise, pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us as well, Daniel. Um, Normally, at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate we approach the subject from that angle because it's proven to be such a significant challenge, hasn't it, for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves, just to what extent has it all affected things? Well, I think for the publishing industry and Keep the Faith generally, I think we've seen um, a variety of impacts, four major changes we've seen ourselves. Um, the first one is we've seen a, a change in the way that our businesses are spending money, uh, particularly in advertising revenue. We've also seen changing media habits. We've seen a lot of people move from uh, reading print only to print and digital. We're also seeing some innovative and cool new products coming out of the media sector itself. And um, for us as a niche magazine, we are seeing um, quite a lot of growth in our target audience coming to our magazine for information. And do you think that some of the developments of recent months are perhaps a real contributing factor to that? Because what we have seen is um, not only, of course, the COVID-19 situation laying bare some of the deep-rooted inequalities in society and the fact that black and minority ethnic communities are considered more vulnerable to succumbing to the virus, but also with everything that went on in America early on in the year with the um, the murder of George George Floyd, of course, and the ramifications of that, the worldwide Black Black Lives Matter protests. I think that really has been an influence, hasn't it? It's been a very big influence on what people are reading on our website, Mm. definitely for sure. Um, At the beginning of the COVID period, uh, when people first went into lockdown, we saw a 20-fold increase in visitors to our website, predominantly looking for information on how to stay safe um, in the COVID period. Of course, um, predominantly catering to the uh, black and ethnic minority community who are more at risk. I think we're seeing a lot of people really desperately looking for information and answers uh, around what is COVID, how is it transmitted, how can I stay safe at home, what should I be doing at home as well. And the second point that you raised, this year we have seen a number of race-related, I don't want to say news stories, but incidents worldwide, Mm. which of course have attracted a lot of media attention and we've been sure to cover those to keep the faith print and keep the faith digital. And we've seen a lot of traffic going towards those websites as well. People looking for answers and information and also opinion pieces on what has happened. 
And because, of course, there's been that move toward the digital side of things and more people now starting to work from home and less people venturing outdoors and obviously having access to print resources, do you think that digital is largely going to be the way of the future in the uh, the publishing industry and it's maybe accelerated the move towards that this pandemic? I do. Um, I think that what's happened during the pandemic is that because people are isolated at home, they've relied on the technologies like uh, mobile phones and uh, laptops in order to access information they ordinary, ordinarily would have got through print sources. So as I said before, we've seen a huge surge in online traffic, and I, I expect that that's probably the same for most publishing companies. Um, the information that people are looking for is the same. So we know that they are... Um, they are coming to us through just different channels that we weren't expecting. And we also are seeing a huge change in the type of products that we need to provide. So previously we just provided web services, but now with the COVID we've, um, we've taken the step to provide our digital magazine in a fully enhanced way. So we are embedding videos in our magazine as well, hyperlinks to, uh, to, for example, the writers in the magazine and the people that we feature in the magazine and also linking directly through to people's work profiles like LinkedIn. So we're seeing a lot more of a digitally connected uh, media world now. And I can imagine as well that given that the pandemic has also amplified the importance of mental health and well-being, those issues are also something perhaps that you've targeted in some of your um, outlets um, as well, how to sort of address that, how to safeguard that, because that's also incredibly important. It is, Scott. And um, particularly when, when you're an ethnic minority in the UK, one of the feelings that you would have even pre-COVID is isolation. And trying to find people from a similar community as yourself is already quite difficult, especially if you don't live in London and you live in one of the uh, cities outside of London or even in the suburbs or rural areas. And so one of the things that we were really conscious with Keep the Faith over the last 15, 16 years is that we're not just a magazine, we're a community resource. So the people, wherever they are in the world or wherever they are in the UK, feel connected to the communities that they're comfortable with. Um, so we were very adamant that during the COVID period, we needed to keep publishing our magazine. So we just didn't leave those communities isolated during this difficult time. And as you've been sort of faced with this new reality and you've adapted to it over the uh, the last few months, is there anything you could say that this whole experience has taught you as, as sort of a leader within the publishing industry? Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, something that I've noticed inside of Keep the Faith and also with some of the readers that interact with us. Mm-hmm. And that is that you really need to you really need to put in an effort to go out there and make sure that people are not left on their own. Um, we already ran a remote business, but I think we made the assumption that people had quite um, broad lives outside of Keep the Faith. But what we saw in the lockdown, especially when people were locked at home, is that those other social channels very quickly were cut off because people couldn't spend any time with each other. And so we ourselves, one thing that we learned is that we really had to reach out to absolutely everybody to make sure that they knew that we were there as a social channel as well. This wasn't just work for people. This wasn't just a magazine. But we were there as a resource so that people weren't really left on their own. Um, and that's something that we've been trying to focus on really heavily over the last few months, making sure that no staff member feels like they've been forgotten um, and that every staff member has access to the rest of the team and reaching out to people that we wouldn't normally work directly with as well. 
it's breaking down those barriers, isn't it? And really maximising the use of technology, especially during this time, to keep the communication channels open. And that's been so, so, so important over the last few months, sir, from a leadership point of view, keeping connected in that way. It definitely has been. And we've been trying to increase the ways that we can connect with people. So um, especially for our readers, we used to just have the website. We're now providing a digital magazine. We're also providing those interactive magazines as well. Um, We also still provide our print magazine and we are trying to distribute it far broader and smaller numbers, especially to communities which are further away from the city. So we're really putting in a lot of effort to find areas that we know ethnic minorities might live in the UK, I feel quite isolated and we try and send them to community groups or churches in those areas as well. Mm. And one thing that we've certainly seen um, over the uh, the last few months from leaders in all walks of life is that they've had to really step up and be beacons of inspiration and keep people motivated and keep people reassured during a time like this. And talking about inspiration, thinking back over your career, Dan, as you've sort of grown and taken on the reins at Keep the Faith, are there any sort of examples of leaders out there, either through history or that you've encountered in real life, that perhaps have maybe inspired you and helped mould you into the person you are today, do you think? Actually, um, so I'm part of a number of director networks, and as a young ethnic director, mm. it's very difficult to find somebody, I would say, that mirrors myself, somebody I can look directly to and say, um, this is somebody like me. So one of the ways that I had to get around that was actually to try and look for qualities that I appreciated in different people. So rather than finding a particular role model, I'd, role mo- I'd uh look at a particular behavior and try and model that behavior. Mm. So I've got a number of people in my wider circle that I really do look up to and I respect them for being excellent people and excellent leaders. And uh, there are particular qualities in them that I think I really should have that as well. Or I'd like to have that. I'd like to work towards that. So I probably said there's about three or four people in my life that mm. I think uh, are excellent role models for me. I think it's a really fascinating approach to that, actually. And also, it's um, a, a good message, the fact that you also have um, a network of directors that you, of course, look to. Because I think as a young entrepreneur or business leader, especially, networking is one of the best things that you can do. Because ultimately, leadership is all about learning, isn't it? We're never a finished article. We're always developing, always improving. And one of the best ways that you can do that and pick up new skills is to seek out people um, who are experts in different fields, mentors, perhaps, and be able to learn from them and take something away from their expertise. I, I definitely agree, Scott. And one of the, the key things about leadership is that the environment you're in is never static. There's never a moment where you can kind of sit back and say, well, I've learned everything I need to learn and I can now ride on that that knowledge that I have. What you'll find is that the environment around you continually evolves and the people around you change. And you need to be able to adapt to those environments and agility is one of the key skills of being a leader Um, and that also includes going out and looking for those new role models who uh, who is a great inspiration in this new environment and and personally one of the things I really enjoy is learning I come from an academic background so I really find that that side of it the prickly challenge of uh, that ambiguous landscape and what what skills or knowledge do I need to navigate it I find that really rewarding to find those answers in either people or books or sometimes you find them the inspiration from areas you don't expect like watching a film you think oh that's great I, I that's something I need to take with me in life 
Exactly right. You can learn from so many different sources and it is a time where young aspiring leaders certainly should be looking to these resources, looking to these people and trying to pick up new skills and also adaptability, as you mentioned there. It's so, so important at a time like this because when we're in such an uncertain economic landscape, especially, there are a lot of people out there that are going to have to adapt, maybe have to sort of update their skill sets and try and find new opportunities. And there are certainly going to be some out there. So for those that may be downhearted by the current situation, um, across the world it's a time for a little bit of positivity and to think you know how can I build myself up and what can I offer to people isn't it yeah I, I totally agree and I, I I firmly believe that everybody has something to offer to this world um, you just need to find the niche that you're you're really passionate about and the area that you're interested in developing those skills in that's I think one of the big challenges that a lot of people especially young people when they go through uh, whatever career path they go down university or straight into industry they join a track and a few years in they become a little bit dispassionate and realize it's not the right track but you just need to be aware that you always have the option to move to a new track Mm. go look at the things you're good about go look at the things you're passionate about and you want to learn more about and if you end up on the right track then what you do on a day-to-day basis no longer feels like work it becomes a vocation a passion for you it does you're exactly right and um just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program dan because i'm conscious that we are beginning to uh, run short of time um we know that it's going to be a little bit of a tricky year ahead as we sort of get to grips with the uh, the post-covid world um but over the course of the year uh, the next 12 months if we could sort of pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment and can look that far ahead, um, where is it ideally that you would like Keep the Faith to be this time in 12 months? And what are the real changes that you want to see sort of socially by that point in time as well? So in terms of Keep the Faith, where I'd like to be in 12 months' time is reaching some of the smaller communities that we haven't quite got to yet. And that's for the sole purpose of making sure that those people aren't left behind, aren't isolated. I also want to see uh, people from outside our community take a little bit of interest in what happens in the UK's black and multi-ethnic community. There's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of interesting cultural pieces. It's just nice to know about these other cultures, especially if you want to have some empathy on how other people see the world. Um, I think that's probably the main takeaway. Uh, Going forward, I'm really excited to see what kind of innovative products and services come out of the publishing industry generally. Mm. As I said, for the last year or so, we've been really excited working with a fully enhanced digital magazine. And I'd like to see what happens after that. Yeah, it's certainly going to be interesting times for the sector as a whole, and it'll be good to see what sort of innovations do certainly uh, come out of the pipeline. And I think that just given how exciting all of this is and how many variables there still are and how this could pan out, Dan, I think it would be wonderful to actually catch up at some point in the next few months and welcome you back onto the show just to see how things are actually uh, coming along and we can assess just how far things have gone since then. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate that. I'd love to come back. I'd really appreciate that as well, Dan. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the programme today. It's been a real, real pleasure having you with us. And most importantly as well, until we do have an opportunity to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on in the world as well. Thank you. You too, Scott.
I'd also like to extend that message to all of the listeners tuning into today's programme. Please do continue to stay well and look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this time. It was a pleasure to welcome Daniel Tullock, Chief Executive of Keep the Faith and Diverse Media Group, onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord David Blunk who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. He held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during the latter's premiership and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His political exploits saw him elevated to Parliament's House of Lords in August 2015. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew welcomed the opportunity to catch up with him. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 
2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere 
uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, uh, great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people 
to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. Uh, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? 
that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver 
the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why. The Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much... If I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent 
professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. 
What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.